Welcome to episode 43 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my far more energetic co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie and Chris, how are you all doing? I'm doing great, Winston. How about you, Chris? I am doing fantastic. Well, you all sound better than I do. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys all both had a lot more going on than I did uh, this week. All I've been working on is uh, the very last minute prep for the uh, machine, which should ship this week. My Neo should ship um, to the riggers at least. And there's a good chance, depending on when it arrives at the riggers, that they might bring it out same day. Um, I don't know what day it's going to be there yet. So I think early this week, I'll hear from Daytron um, that they've turned it over to the carrier. And it's just kind of depends on how fast that Teamster driver drives, right? <laughs> I have them working on the airlines, uh, just kind of getting those cut to length, and I'll have those mounted up this week. And that's the last bit of stuff I have to do, other than moving stuff out of the way, um, start parking my car in the garage or in the driveway. So how about you, Winston? You just got back from a trip. I I did. I came back from WorkbenchCon in Atlanta, and I am thoroughly exhausted. It was, uh, we went down, me and my buddy George, um, on Wednesday, and then we hung out with some people that evening. Uh, Thursday, the event sort of kicked off, uh, and then uh, it went on for the full day, Friday, Saturday, and I just, I woke up at uh, 6 o'clock Eastern time, so <clears throat> 3 a.m. West Coast time, and uh, caught an early flight back to the West Coast. And uh, it's been a huge whirlwind of just activity because um, the maker community, the content creation thing, it's kind of an inherently lonely uh, pursuit. So when you put all these makers together, uh, they stay up real late just talking uh, and just hanging out in the lobby. And I I could not hang with them like for the full duration like i went to bed at like 1 a.m 2 a.m and these people like just they wouldn't stop talking so (laughs) it was a lot of fun um definitely got inspired but it was really really tiring so you've been several years now what's your feel for how the show's uh evolving is it getting bigger it's kind of still on the upswing or what do you what do you think I think the size is relatively consistent. Um, they they sold out like like within or well like about a week or two out from the start of the show. So it's not like it sells out immediately. It's not like a like BlizzCon or like some other like CES or something. Um, it's it's a relatively stable size show. Like because it's not open to like the general audience. It's it's more meant specifically for content creators, people who are doing making as a business so you don't go to this event like you would go to like vidcon or something and like fanboy over your favorite youtuber you go <laughs> to this thing because you have a legit business like uh, that you're trying to improve um so i mean people are always trying to break into the scene but there's enough of a barrier to entry in terms of like what this uh, conference is tailored to that you don't just get a, a swarm of, of casuals going in just being like, oh, I'm just going to pay like $400 just to go hang out with my favorite person. So it, it's good that it's uh, stayed predominantly a professional networking type uh, gathering. Yeah, that's what I was kind of going to ask next. Is it pretty much the same 
set of uh, content creators every time? Or there, there is definitely like a... a core group of people. I'd say about like sixty percent or more are like uh, like returning makers. So it it does sort of feel like the the same group of people getting together. Like um, for the most part, I feel like I'm, I'm meeting old friends, but I am also making a couple new friends. Um, and even though these are like new people who are going to WorkbenchCon for the first time, uh, they, they've been makers for a while. And like, I've crossed paths with some of them on Instagram and YouTube, uh, but I've just, I've never put a face to the name. So it's still, uh, still kind of a, a surprise when you meet someone for the first time, which is cool. Do you get the impression from kind of people you talked to at the show this year that it's getting easier or harder to kind of do a full-time content creator career um, you know with all the changes and everything that YouTube and and uh, I guess the other the other channels or the other outlets have made right is it hurting these people or, or helping I think um, it's improving slowly um, the, the situation is always changing like the the algorithm has a sort of risen and fallen in terms of its ability to, to make people stand out. Some people love it, some people hate it. Most people are, are neutral or just slightly negative about it. Um, the ways you can earn money through Patreon, through sponsored posts on Instagram, um, companies are getting more creative, people are getting more creative. Uh, certain companies, like uh, certain mobile gaming platforms have... Uh, maybe inundated YouTube with uh, certain ads and oversaturated it. But for the most part, I think that more people are able to get into it. And uh, companies are starting to invest more and more money into YouTube just because they see the value that's there and they know it's here for the long term. Um, in terms of like whether or not uh, existing platforms or new platforms are going to be around three years from now, like uh, TikTok is to be seen and what value they have is uh it, it may fluctuate but i think people are still going to continue to try and either make a living or supplement their income through uh side hobbies and and just the the evening grind of just working in the shop on the latest bomb saunders was talking about you know kind of his philosophy behind income from youtube and all that kind of stuff and I think he's pretty happy as long as he's, you know, he said making videos, it's expensive, right? I mean, in time and effort and I guess for him, staff, right? So, you know, if he can at least cover the cost of the content creation, he's he'd be pretty happy. Like, I think that's kind of his, his metric for is he doing okay um, as far as content income. Yeah. You know, it's not his prime primary business at all, um, but it helps, you know, with the, offsetting some of the costs it's still tricky though because like the amount that you can make directly from youtube is fairly low um so i was talking with another guy um patrick alder he makes like these really cool rings and like a bunch of his videos have gone viral and compared compared to the jewelry business that he runs uh, youtube is like a tiny tiny fraction of that it's enough to pay like a salary for maybe an employee and a half or something so yeah. if you think of having someone just making videos or him investing his own time into making videos 
it's it's really not a money maker compared to his physical product but youtube is like a great um sort of marketing tool for him in that sense like he has several videos that go over a million views uh, so it it's worth investing in the platform but if you're going into it with the idea that the videos themselves are going to keep you afloat your business model probably has a couple holes in it uh, i was about to say like you know the the power of youtube is not and how much they pay you it's it's the exposure that you get for whatever it is that you want to share right it's the ability to make a video and somebody all across the world can watch it and, and follow along whatever it is that you're posting um i totally agree with that that sentiment that you shouldn't do the youtube to think that you can make money out of it strictly but you should be doing it as like a supplement if like if you have a business it's just for exposure it's marketing right it's free marketing basically you don't need to pay youtube to market your thing you just need to invest the time to make the content it's just your content outlet basically yeah. Yeah. um yeah i know for some people you know that's different right not necessarily in our community but um you know, like Winston mentioned the gamers i think there's a very small percentage of those people that are probably making pretty decent income off that but i think like for anyone that's doing um, you know, maker type stuff, you're going to probably also want to have a part, either a partnership with a sponsor, you know, directly connected to your sponsor without going through or depending on Google YouTube revenue or have your own business like Saunders says, right? Where basically the YouTube content, um, in addition to its, you know, kind of sharing and learning uh, focus is also, you know, subtly and pretty transparently marketing his product, right? And, and the capabilities of his business, which is perfectly fine. I think that's, you know, that's a pretty healthy use of YouTube. Yeah, I totally agree. And Instagram, yeah. For for people like me anyway, like that's the most I would want out of it. Um, I know, Winston, you've got a little more, you know, bigger plans, right? Sort of, but not really. Um, some people have been like recently posting about like business plans and like, what their five-year plan is, and I honestly don't know where I want to be in five years' time. Like, I know I want, I want to keep making stuff. I want to, like, just sort of increase the the challenge I put on myself to come up with uh, technical things to machine and make. But, like, from a like, I used to um, be under a business entity, the um, Machine Shop of Horrors, which I dissolved when I moved to California because. Like, the, the tax structure was just more annoying. Um, <clears throat> but for myself personally, like, I don't know what I want to get out of YouTube. Um, the money really, do I don't care about it because I have a full-time job that pays a salary. So it's not like I need YouTube to, to pay rent or put food on the table. Like, that's covered. So the, like, I know I'm not going to become filthy rich through YouTube, so... Like, if you took YouTube away, I would still make what I'm making, and I would still try and find a way to educate people, but, like, I don't really have, like, a business that I'm trying to grow. Like, it'd be cool to hit 100,000 subs, but I don't really have, like, a fixed milestone that I'm chasing. You have a base camp, basically, you know, with, with having a job at, at C3D that helps you not depend 100% on YouTube, right? So that's, I think that's pretty important. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, my hands aren't tied and I can produce whatever, like, my creative itch wants me to make. And, uh, yeah. like, for now, that's good enough. We'll see if my ambitions 
grow or if there's a specific target or something I want to hit. I just don't know what that is right now. Let me drop a hypothetical on you then. What happens if one day YouTube starts to make a buttload of cash and like you could take off and do it as purely content creation? You wouldn't need Carbide 3D anymore to supplement that. Would you leave Carbide and do something like that to pursue your own thing? Or would you still find a way to manage like having a daytime job and doing content creation? That's a very good question. And I will steal an answer from Mark Rober. Um, he, on the, I think it was the Still Untitled uh, podcast by Adam Savage, um, said something along the lines of a lot of people see like success on YouTube as being a grind. Um, the more content you put out, the better, and like the, the more the algorithm favors you. And like if you want to increase your income, you put out more videos so you can run more ads. Um, but his take on it was what if you reverse it? What if you just keep the same number of videos coming out if it's on a monthly basis? So be it, it doesn't have to be weekly or bi weekly. Um, just invest more into those videos. Um, so instead of like trying to increase your cadence, you just you keep the same cadence and you increase the quality. And I think if yeah. I did that, I could be happy because I'm not chasing like like viral fame. Um, and I would still be able to, to sort of just grow my presence online just by like just investing in better videos. And I think I would probably still keep a job because like it, it's nice to be like have coworkers and health insurance and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. Um, but I would hey, be, Jeff. Yeah. I would feel more liberated to maybe take bigger risks in the kinds of projects that I take on, uh, maybe even let them like go longer without uploading a video. Like I'll just take on more ambitious projects that take a little longer and ultimately have a little more fun with that while still trying to uh, just educate the audience about digital fabrication through hmm, the day job. Okay. I would say of the three of us, you were definitely the right one to go to work with Con. <laughs> like you probably got the you yeah. you got the no, most absolutely. out of it. Uh, so is WorkbenchCon is that something you were invited to or people can't buy I remember we were talking about this, people can't buy tickets for it, right? It's like a thing that you get invited because of whatever reason you're a maker or something like that? No, it's it's open to the public. Um, it, it's just specifically marketed towards uh, makers who have a business or are trying to grow. Yeah, I think that the price threshold is high enough to, you know, if you weren't going there for the specific learning, right, you yeah. would probably invest in the, it. The tickets are priced an order of magnitude higher than Maker Fair was. So that's how you sort of like filter out like the kids and their supportive parents. And it's really just like, like yeah. professional. Right, right. You have to be okay, committed. That makes sense. <laughs> Or invested, I should say, yeah. So uh, Sammy was there, right? Our recent yes, guest? Yes, she was. Um, she was uh, sort of just grassroots uh, representing Avid. Um, but it's always fun to be uh, able to chat with someone else who has a very similar job to what you do. Um, and so that was just one of the many conversations I had, like just mingling around in the hotel lobby. But she did raise an interesting question that I kind of want to throw to you guys. And that is what separates a machinist from a maker? Because like my opinion, like my vision going into this podcast when we first started it was that it would sort of help bridge the, the gap between like the woodworkers who just got a CNC and the Insta machinist community. 
but clearly like machining seems to be like very much uh just the the venn diagram of who listens to this podcast is heavily biased towards the machinist side and not so much like your maker your fabricator your woodworker um, and i'm wondering why you think there's it, it's so heavily weighted why can't we get more casual like woodworkers uh to to sort of speak our language that's a really good question i think i'll start with like the like technically the, the definition of a machinist in my eyes is somebody who just operates the machine right is someone who typically at a job shop like runs the part and does production and stuff and i think even in industry like at my work that's kind of what that term is used to describe as somebody that operates a machine tool and isn't really part of the design process or the creative process. It's just basically there to like cycle start set up and make sure that it runs and, and make sure that it runs the same way continuously. I think what separates a machinist and a maker is that a maker is much more than that. It's not somebody who just operates a machine tool, but somebody who has to create an idea, generate an idea and bring that idea into whatever medium that they're using, whether it be wood, uh, you know, or CNC's or a router or a hand tool and create a product based on that. And I think whether they're doing production or not is irrelevant. I think the most aspect of it is that the person being a maker is the creative behind that and is able to bring his idea or her idea into life. And I think a machinist purely just by definition is just like somebody who operates a machine. And I think that's what separates the two. I don't consider like machinists and instant machinists the same group. The instant machinists I follow, I think those guys like machining is just one of the skills. Like those guys, they're not, they don't, they're not dedicated like operators, right? They're usually, they're usually have some other role and machining is just one of the things they do. They're running their own business and they can do pretty much everything of the business, you know, design, CAD programming, um, stuff that has nothing to do with necessarily operating the machine. Um, a lot of them are, a lot of them are, I think, mechanical engineers. And, uh, like, then there's machinists, right? That, like, your traditional machinists, they can be highly skilled, but they're probably older and not necessarily sharing on social media what they're doing. Right. I think, okay, so that's a difficult part about this. It's like, well, if we're just using the word machinist, right? Because a person on instant machinist can be a machinist, a programmer, a designer, blah, blah, blah. Like if you were to put this on a resume and list it out, you, you wouldn't just be on the machine. It's like, I can program, I can do this, I can design. But like, are we just talking strictly in terms of like, okay, a machinist as in that word, or is it more of like, like, how do we define this? Like what, what are the rules or parameters of this? Like between the two? Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Do you call your, do you consider yourself a machinist or would you call yourself a machinist? Like I don't, I don't think I'm anywhere near good enough. With the CNC machine, you basically only run hobby machines. Um, I would not call myself a machinist, like in public. <laughs> so I use maker. Maker is kind of like a safer word for me, I guess. Um, outside of our community, most people don't know what you're talking about. But uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's easier I mean, to explain, right? <laughs> I'm in a weird spot. <laughs> yeah, you actually Chris, do you don't get to talk because you are like yeah. professionally. You you're a professional. Run, yeah. You program like okay. industrial CNC. Does that, so does that mean I'm a machinist now? Like I, I've never really thought about it, you know, and it's always weird uh, yeah. to talk about sometimes. Cause I don't know how the industry views me because I come from a hobby machinist background, but I mean, between a machinist and a maker, like, I don't know. I mean, it's, 
for me, like I said, just a maker is just kind of somebody that can do it all, right? I would say you're the only one of the three of us that could put machinists on a resume <laughs> right, and not right, be inflating right. the resume, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I think Eddie and I, we both, have to, we both have to qualify our titles with hobby machinist, at least until Eddie gets proficient with the Neo. Okay, okay. That, that's fair. I can, I can live with that. And looping back to, like, Winston, at the beginning of this question, he was, I think, Winston, you were saying uh, kind of the Venn diagram between, like, makers and our audience, um, which I tend to think of as are mostly instant machinists. I, I think where they overlap a little bit is uh, interest in digital fabrication. So, you know, basically CNC machinists, uh, people that are comfortable with CAD CAM. It's more than just machining, right? But um, And that, you know, that's if our overlap in the audience is uh, basically has any common criteria. It's probably that because, you know, the manual machinists probably aren't following. I don't know if they're even following instant machinists, um, probably not listening to our podcast. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the makers still don't use machines at all. Right. So the, some of the woodworkers, they're all hand, what I consider very skilled handcraft type people, um, knife makers, some of those guys who some of them getting into machines. Some of them have only done machines, uh, only done that style, like uh, Grim Smile. Um, so yeah, I think some of it, like if you're specifically asking about our audience and what potentially has them listening to every episode or every other, every few episodes, it's, it's kind of that convergence between computer software and, and computer controlled machining, right? Or machines in general. Yeah. So, CNC, 3D printers, lasers, like uh, everyone here listening should probably have a familiarity or like a comfort level around that. Yeah, I would say our audience's, I mean, our audience's interests probably overlap with ours pretty well. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which kind of makes sense, right, for a podcast. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't expect the digital fabric or DFX to appeal to, you know, somebody that's handcrafting you know, beautiful cabinetry or, or furniture um, might have a few outliers like that that listen, but uh, yeah. So it's hard to say, like to me, you know, creativity plays a role and like, I don't know any makers that aren't, don't have a creative component to what they're doing. Um, I'd say most of the instant machinists kind of fall into the maker category too, because they're either manufacturing their own products that they designed or play a big role in product design and development in addition to just also knowing how to run a machine. So yeah, it's a, that's a tough question to answer, but uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah. I, I think I have a, my notion of like the median uh, like listener would be someone who's like comfortable working with like both wood and metal. And I know that like a lot of the instant machinists, like what they post is just aluminum machining porn or steel machining and, I don't know. It feels like there. I wish there were more people embracing like multi-material projects. But for people who are doing production stuff in an actual machine shop, um, they're strictly doing metals. And for people who run CNC routers, it's almost exclusively wood. So it's. I feel like it's hard to find people who like uh, willingly jump between both of them or combine them or, or do something that just that covers multiple disciplines in the projects that they make. Yeah. You start, you start to kind of fall more into the hobby type interests, right? Using CNC for, 
or hobby type pursuits or just, you know, creative outlet, not necessarily commercial product. But, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, we'll see a lot more of our audience at something like an Autodesk event than we would probably at, at uh, Workbench Con. Yeah. Yeah, or even, or even uh, Maker Fair when that existed. I don't know how many, you know, that was kind of more of the traditional maker audience, right? And, and like so. that included crafting art stuff and right people who would probably not want to go to IMTS. Yeah. And the whole electronic side of making right uh, PCBs and Arduinos and all that stuff, um, which we do talk about a little bit here and I have a pretty strong interest in it. Um, but I don't know how much, how many of those listeners we've managed to rope in. That's a really good question though, because it, it's just basically, there's all these old labels, you know, that have social connotations behind them. And it's like, we're getting to a point where it's all like blending together because the reason why these labels are so specific from the past is because you couldn't do all the stuff that we're doing now. You know, nobody had a CNC machine in their garage. Nobody could do the, the production only stuff in their home. And now that we have access to that stuff, like 3d printing, woodworking, all, all these things. Now it's starting to blend in because you have people that can do it all. And I think that's why this is such a difficult question to answer is because we've gotten to this point in technology and in life where it's all kind of melding and these new types of individuals are being born out of it and these labels no longer exist to classify them properly. And that's why we're having such a difficult time to, to do this because, man, we've, we've gotten so much further ahead than we have in you know, the last 10 years or so. Yeah, like when I'm talking in a business context, you know, now that I have my own little um, my own business. Um, like I don't ever describe myself in a commercial context as a maker. I basically, you know, someone asked what I, what service I offer with my business. It's, I say, you know, I'm doing mechanical design and prototyping services, you know, including machining, multi-axis machining. And, uh, cause I just don't like when I was at emo, I never, I don't think I said the word maker once when I was in Germany. <laughs> Right in that crowd, the Germans probably would have given you a weird look. Yeah, <laughs> I think they they prefer tinker, right? They're tinker over there. That's their that's their equivalent. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of connotation in just the term machinist, and I guess now that I, I like your point, Chris, that the the barriers between these fields are are coming down, and that you don't necessarily need to be machining as a profession to have an understanding of it. And um, it just, it makes like, as people are able to engage with more technologies, more processes, they become more versatile. And so these, these labels uh, might start to lose meaning over time. We'll see. Yeah. This is, this is at some point become a, a skill set you add to your, you know, especially if you're running a business or, and you're starting a business, right? Startup, uh, trying to develop a, a physical product. You know, it's, it'd be good to at least have some machining knowledge, right? Um, even if you're not going to make your own parts, just to be able to deal with the, the shops that will be making them. So did you make any visits, any uh, tour or shop visits while you were there? We did have a little extra time on Thursday. And uh, Chad from Mancrafting, uh, we'll, we'll link him in the show notes. He's a very well-connected maker. Um, he got us a tour of the Georgia Tech Invention Studio, which I'd, I'd seen snippets of um, through social media last year when a couple people went. 
but it is this ridiculous studio that any student has access to uh, 24-7, basically, as long as like you're a full student. And they have uh, like a dozen FDM printers, like half a dozen Formlabs printers. They stock every resin imaginable. The filament is free. Um, they also have a machine shop. And all of this is available to a student. And they pay for all the materials so long as you're not specifically selling a project. You could be an entrepreneur, but as long as you're doing prototyping and you're not selling exactly what you're making, um, you're free to use the facilities. And I, I'm really, really disappointed that I didn't have anything like this when I was in school because it is a ridiculous capability. And I think they said they went through like like somewhere between ten to $30,000 worth of consumables per month and they just they find grant money they have sponsors and partnerships but they're able to provide this amazing uh, capacity or capability to students and it's it's pretty awesome um their shop is uh like i've never seen anything like it in a school before and i came from like the university of michigan and which is a fairly large institution they do have machine shops but there was always like it's a manufacturing lab or you have to be taking a class or like you're working on a senior project nowhere did anyone say hey you can walk in anytime you want use the machines don't worry about paying for the filament if you 3d print something so i i was kind of mind blown about that holy crap dude that sounds like uh like some kind of fantasy land right like think about it every single form labs resin that they have in the catalog, which you know those bottles cost like hundreds of dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And they uh, they were describing like, uh, don't worry if you break it, we'll just buy a new one. So, like they really want to reduce the uh, the friction for students to just like try iterate it. on an idea. Yeah. yeah, just come in and try it. Like you have nothing to lose, right? Come on in and give it a shot. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm just really jealous about that facility. Uh, they like Lockheed Martin bought them some power tools. They've got uh, like a five-axis water jet. They're getting another one soon. Um, they had a, a machine shop um, that had a, a super mini mill that was still waiting to be set up. But also within it, they had like two pieces of like Zeiss metrology, um, like the the CMMs and stuff, um, which for a student to be able to learn on that is crazy. Um, the, I think I would say about a dozen like bridge ports or like manual mills, bunch of lathes, um, like bandsaws that will cut steel. It's just a ridiculous amount of capability that like students can just walk in and use. Is Georgia Tech known for that? Is it like a manufacturing hub type thing or what kind of university is that? Like, what are they known for? Like, why would they have this great facility for something like that? I'm not sure, but I did consider applying to them because their aerospace program is, like, like one of the, the top, whatever, like, 10 or 20. Mm-hmm. So I know they're, they do have a strong engineering program. Okay. That makes sense, then. Yeah, they're a big engineering school. Damn, imagine if you would have went there, you might have you might be team additive and not subtractive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
they still like they, they still like have a really strong um set of uh, subtractive manufacturing tools there so maybe maybe not we'll see but i definitely would have become a better maker for having gone there mm-hmm. yeah that's cool man hey chris you have uh chris you have some team subtractive news of your own to share with us don't you um yeah uh I actually got a new job. <laughs> I turned in my two weeks uh, earlier this week, and I'm going to be a multi-axis programmer for an aerospace company. And wow. um, I get to work on five-axis machines and multi-axis lathes. I'll be programming, and I'll be running the machine. I'll be creating the fixtures, running the setup. And then once I have that program perfected and ready for production, I hand it off to the operator and then they'll run the rest of it. And then I get to go back to doing all the fun stuff. At least I think it's fun, which is like all the you know, programming and running the machine the first time and seeing the part made and, and then making it better and then before handing it off to someone else. So I'm super excited for the opportunity and uh, I can't I can't wait to start. I start in March. Wow, sweet. Now still in the same LA area we are it's now, right? four miles south of my current job. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. That sounds uh, like a big step for you. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the last part of my resume that's always bothered me has been the fact that I don't have a lot of experience in front of a, a real quote unquote machine. And, you know, like we talked earlier, I, I get really mad when people don't respect that. Like, even though I'm working on a small machine, it, I'm still learning a bunch of stuff that work, makes sense for the big machine. And so now I'm focusing on this part of my resume that I think is weak in that retrospect. So I think when I, when I go through and learn all the things at the shop, it'll make me a, a better kind of employee when it comes to machining, programming, design, and all this stuff. So um, I, I'm really, really stoked, especially being in, in this industry, the aerospace stuff is kind of where I'm heading toward. And in the next two to five years, I have my next set of goals kind of set already. And this will definitely help me get there. Do you have any other uh, strategies to help improve your multi-axis machining skills? <laughs> yeah. So like, so while this was happening with the new job, um, a friend of mine who owns a motorcycle shop contacted me and said, hey, you know, I, I've talked to him before and told him, you need to bring all your machining in-house. Like you're spending way too much money for less quality stuff and you guys have enough parts to pay for machine no problem and he finally hit me up you know two years later and he's like hey i'm ready to get a machine and uh if you want to come in you know have these with me we can do this and i said well the only machine that i'm going to go have these on is a umc 500 and he said done so we talked to a haas rep and we got a quote on a really good uh haas umc 500 that apparently another customer bought three and when it came time to delivery he only accepted two so this third one's been kind of the black sheep of the Haas community over there and they want to get rid of it. So they gave us a fat discount and so, yeah, uh, so, so what they call immediately available. Right? Exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. they want to offload it as fast as possible. That's so perfect. and still uh, brand new, yeah. still brand new. Like it's never been, and they've already included all the rigging and delivery. So they're going to bring it into the shop where we want it and drop it down. Um, the only thing is uh, I'm just adding like small stuff to the, to the options list because it, what it comes with is this is what I want to talk to you guys about is um, 10k spindle which I wasn't too stoked about because I wanted 15 but I'm not sure if the 11k price tag is worth another 5k RPM if we're just going to be machining aluminum mainly um, and it has the 
chip, the belt type chip conveyor and high speed machining. So that's basically all it comes with. And the probing's probe standard, is standard on the yeah. MC500, right? Right, yeah. probing and tool, um, the tool probe. High speed machining that's, option, I think that's on an the option. control is standard. Oh, it is. It's okay. an option, yeah. It's a $3,000 option. Yeah, that's probably one you would want, I would think. Is it an SS or? No, it's just, it's a regular, it's a 10K. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the, you know, the question is, is it worth it? 11K for 15K RPM? You know, our smallest tool that we're going to end up using is probably an eighth inch. I don't think we'd go anything smaller than that because this is for motorcycle parts, at least for my friend's set of stuff. I think for me, I, who knows, like, what I'll end up doing. But um, I don't know. Is it really needed, you know, like, to get that surface feet per minute? I think an eighth inch at 10K, you're looking at, like, 390. You know? Are you talking about the high-speed machining option or uh, I'm just talking about like, SS? I'm just talking about the spindle. Like, is it worth to spend the... Oh, the, the- 10k versus 15 yeah yeah i think it dep- probably some of that comes down to the like how big a tool or how small a tool you'll be running like i think um, the smallest is an eighth inch i don't see myself yeah. going anything smaller than that but i mean even at then at 10k you're at 390 sfm are you going to get good finishes with that i don't know uh, I, I don't know because I, i've never run 390 as surface per minute on a real machine you know so i'm not sure how well that's going to turn out but what do you guys think you think it's worth it or no have you talked it out with the Haas rep? He he thinks like because the price delta should be about six thousand. Just looking at their uh, build and price. Period. Yeah, like to just up it right to the next level. Yeah, I, I have that yeah. sort of. I emailed him over the weekend because he sent the quote like Saturday, and I emailed him earlier today, so he hasn't gotten back yet. But that was my first question: is like, well, if we go to fifteen, what's the cost difference? But I'm trying to think: am I am I just doing this because I want more RPM, <laughs> or is it because I actually need the more RPM, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, I mean, you know the kinds of parts you're going to be making the best. If you have more than like like half a cubic inch of like material to remove with an eighth inch, then I would say definitely go fifteen thousand. But if you can hog out the majority and you're just trying to like bore little holes that you can tap them or something, you you probably would be okay with ten thousand. But then also. Like once this machine is paid off and you want to start running your own parts or something, um, what kind of parts are you going to be running on this? Yeah. Do you guys know is um, Saunders UMC seven fifty? It's ten k spindle, right? His parts look pretty amazing coming off of that. It's aluminum, aluminum parts. But that's also dependent on the tool size that he's using, and I don't think he's making like tiny, tiny right. parts. I don't. I don't know yeah. what I'm going to make, and that's the question. You know, I don't. What what I love about this whole deal that I'm getting is that we're going half on the machine and once the machine starts making money and enough to pay for itself, I, I won't be on the hook to pay for that monthly. And he's happy with me just helping him get it set up to run his parts. And once I do, if it pays for itself, then I'm in the clear and then he'll actually buy me out. And it's still my toy that I can come in and play with in the evening. So I, it's a it's a no it's a win 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 for me in every aspect. And I get to help a friend. And we both, you know, he gets to make money and I get a machine to call my own to do whatever I want. I don't, I'm not going to be like pinned down to like a customer or anything. And I think for me, like I've learned about that about myself is like once I start doing work for the people, it starts to pull away from like when I want to do stuff and then it kind of kills my, my incentive a little bit. So being able, that freedom for me is super exciting and that's more important than anything else. But um, yeah, I don't know. You know, there's, there's definitely a possibility I can need it. So is it one of those things where you just buy it, you get the 15 K and you worry about it later just because it's there. 
um, you don't want the 10K and then find out you need it later and it's too late. Do you know, does it have a through spindle coolant? Is that? that yeah, we're adding through spindle coolant. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that would be like the main thing I'd probably say consider. Um, yeah, so we're going to add the, like all the coolant management stuff, like the automatic refill, the, you know, all the auxiliary coolant filter and stuff like that, programmable coolant um, through tool, air blast, spindle coolant. Um, and then the, we're adding M codes because we want to do, uh, some stuff we have some ideas for some things that we want to do kind of like pearson how he did that that the little automation. arm yeah, the automation stuff yeah. at the arm that came down yeah. big, we have ideas for things like that as well so yeah. um yeah but everything else is standard and that's all we kind of need to get going and we can start making stuff but um does he does he run a cnc a big vmc today in his shop the one that he has in his shop is that arrow cincinnati from 1995 and that's the one oh, okay. that i run and set up for him like yeah. I, I basically have got that machine into production to run a bunch of his parts already. So he doesn't yeah, even like call only, me in anymore. Yeah, he just runs. I was just thinking, uh, miss you know some sort of mist collector. Oh, we were gonna collector. get the uh, the one that Pearson and Saunders both recommended. It was like mist away or something. They were saying yeah, that they didn't yeah. like the Haas enclosure one as much. So we we're gonna get that as a separate one. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty exciting UMC five hundred. So. Uh, after you guys come and visit me, I'm going to have to come up there and visit you. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, come on down. Like, and go check you, that out. Not only are you going to come visit, I want to make you run something on that thing. Like, <laughs> you, I'll run you through everything. You know, that that's like the fun yeah. part. So we can make a tombstone on it. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the other thing was, you know, thirty tool changer, fifty tool changer. Is it worth fifteen grand <laughs> to add uh, a fit, another twenty tools? Um, I think for me, I would love to have a 50 tool changer, but that's a lot of money for that. And I think. Are you guys doing like heavy production of. Uh, You know, for him, he runs like 500 to 1,000 parts on one run. Um, Well, I mean, but how many parts, like how many unique parts? He's got about like 30 to 50 unique parts. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. he's got quite a bit. But I think from. I'll be able to standardize, I think. 20 tools so that it'll run all his parts yeah yeah, yeah and I then we'll have... I mean, to really figure that out like if you need the higher capacity tool changer you almost have to do that analysis like uh, grimstone does with this. Yeah. yeah he figured out ahead of time what tools he needed for each of the parts and of course that's you know that's fairly static um or assumes you have a fairly static product catalog if you're adding always adding new parts you're probably always going to wish you had more but you know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't, you, you have to compromise somewhere, right? So. Yeah. I honestly think we can get away with running with 30 because we'll, we will be prototyping a lot of stuff because we're making intakes for motorcycles and we're doing all sorts of like unique things. And because of that, uh, it'd be nice, but I think, you know, 20 tools for a standard and then I leave 10 tools for unique situations. I think that yeah. should be enough. Um, yeah. Cause when I was running the Haas, the mini mill at school, we had, 10 dedicated tools and then we had 10 for unique situation and, and it worked out like you know having roughers and finishers and stuff like that but yeah um yeah so yeah it's crazy i you know a week ago or two weeks ago it was like not enough five axes in my life and all of a sudden it's all over my face <laughs> so uh, it's <laughs> yeah. been really really exciting now yeah, do you guys have any other uh things that you've heard from other machinists about what we should be getting or that's pretty much it so the only the only Recent UMC 500 
delivery I've seen documented is uh, Jay Pearson's video. I think it came out this week or last week. So he, he did a pretty good overview of what he ordered and why he ordered. Um, I think there were even some things on there that he didn't remember ordering. So I think I think that's because they were probably standard. Um, UMC 500 looks like comes with a lot of stuff that's standard that I'm used to seeing being extra cost right. options on the Haas. It, it, yeah, it comes with a Renishaw probe, I think, and also the yeah. tool setter, um, the wireless intuitive probes system right. or whatever. And then it comes with... Uh, Dynamic work offsets and all that stuff, rigid tapping, you know, a bunch of normal, normal stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, you know that's a pretty it sits in a pretty sweet spot in their product catalog for multi-axis and what they equip it with just as the base model. Like UMC five hundred is a pretty compelling machine, right? I'd say. Um, the you know the only thing that bugs me about them is like the memory thing is like they have onboard memory already there, but they lock oh. it. <laughs> You know, so you only you only get a gig with the machine, and it, it costs a thousand dollars to unlock it to thirty two. Um, right. I don't know; it rubs me a little bit in the wrong way. You know, especially nowadays where more memory is not like it was before. And but um, yeah, I mean, we're probably going to get the. But that's like easy stuff. You can add that like after the machine's been set down and everything. They just come in and yeah, plop it in cold and open it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of new machines, I saw. I guess. Uh, Saunders took delivery of his Neo, which is also pretty cool. Oh, I yeah. think, uh, yeah, Dan was out there today. I don't, I don't know if they were, I think he's officially setting it up tomorrow or starting tomorrow, but, uh, so I'm going to be watching that kind of, you know, it's like a dry run for what I got to do <laughs> or what I'll be doing in a, in a week. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Winston, now it's your turn to go buy a Kern. <laughs> <laughs> I just, as much as it would be nice, just because I was just doing a project on the Pocket NC, wishing I had like a 50,000 RPM spindle so I could get much better surface finishes with like a 1 inch ball end mill, I don't think I can just quite justify the uh, the current yet. Yeah. Maybe maybe next year. Yeah. I mean, you, I, you know, I fully expect you to make something and design it and come make it on the UMC when, you, when you're ready. So, oh, oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked. And, uh, you know, this is like dream coming true within a year. Like, literally, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't even know how to explain everything that's been going on, but I'm, I'm super happy that it's happening. So I'm not complaining. Oh, so yeah. is the UMC 500, is that a Cat 50 machine? Yeah, uh, Cat 40. Oh, Cat 40. Okay. So, yeah, Cat 40. I think you'd probably afford the 30 tool changer and then just dump a couple thousand and extra tool holders and then just like swap them all in like for a different project if it requires a really different set of tools that's exactly what i was thinking it's not worth because we could if we bought that 50 tool changer for an extra 15k we may not use it all i don't know so i i much prefer to just have like um like these benches set up that are specific for parts that they make and these tools are for that. You know, we have a standard set, and then if there's anything extra, these will go in. I, I'm going to make it super lean, like Pearson style for everybody. 
you know, because the other guys will be operating, but I'm kind of the guy that's going to be setting everything up. So a torque wrenches for each part, you know, things that are going to be exactly Kaizen foam that like to the T, like everything's going to be super easy for them all in one spot. Every part has a specific like process to go through to, for setup and everything. So I'm really looking forward to getting that like all kind of set up for them and, and running it and yeah. And making chips on that thing when it comes in. Yeah. And what I've seen at woodpecker tools, like, when they run apart that they might not run for another couple months, they'll just take the whole set of tools in the tool changer, put it in a tray and store it with like the fixtures for that particular part. Mm -hmm. And you could have multiple sets of like fixtures and tools for 15 grand for parts. Like if they're run infrequently. Right. That's a, actually, that's exactly how like a big job shop that's doing say like aerospace parts. That's exactly how they're doing their customers. You know, the tools, belong to that particular job, that particular customer. And they, you know, they have very tight control over them and they go in the machine when they make the parts and they come out when they're not making those parts anymore. And, uh, yeah, for, you know, basically for, I guess, control and traceability, right. Of the process. So, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So I'm, I thinking that's probably the way to go. And we, and that 15 K can go to so much other stuff like fixtures, vices, you know, tooling, all sorts of fun stuff. So I'd rather use that money for, for, for that instead. Yeah. Now, that 15K spindle, though, yeah. if you think about it, if they let you just, like, pay that price delta to get it, I would sacrifice a V210 to get an extra 5,000 RPM. Right, right. I, I, I also kind of like the idea of having... I mean, if they offered 20, I'd buy 20. If they offered 30, I'd buy 30. You know, I'm just... I will get whatever the highest RPM, like, just because I know what it can do when it comes to the smaller tooling and stuff, but... Yeah, we'll find out. Hopefully he gets back to me and he's like, yeah, you can pay the difference and you're good. And I'm like, good, put it in, add it to the quote and, you know, send it over. <laughs> like we'll sign the dotted line, no problem. Because yep. even even yep. adding all this stuff, it's still lower than what you, if you were to add this on the website and price it out, it ends up being like, I think like 150 or something. And we're getting it for like way, 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 way lower than that. So it's, it's almost like a no brainer still. It's just, it's just... Uh, more about like is this really worth not that it's not a good deal it is a good deal it's just is it worth our money immediately like is this the best thing to spend that money on or is it better used in something else you know so um we'll see yeah. what he says yeah the spindle is something you can't change out later not without a lot of work right. like that memory upgrade simple yeah. but i think especially if you're going to be just running it at night for your own stuff you're going to want that that extra yeah. speed because I'm assuming you're going to have like some small parts yeah. um, that start from smaller stock that you'll use smaller tools on, especially trying to transfer your pocket NC knowledge for your personal projects. That RPM is really going to speed things up for you. Yeah, yeah. And I think with the high RPM, and we can also get you know squeeze out you know faster machining. Like basically, we can uh, increase our efficiency for production times and stuff with it as well. So yeah. Is most of the stuff you're going to be doing aluminum or a mix of aluminum and steel? So for them, it's going to be pretty much all aluminum. I think they don't have anything because oh. it's all that stuff that goes on the on the bike. You know, take it, all of the RPMs. Right. That's that's what I was thinking. You know, it, yeah, it, it'd be worth it. Oh, you know, the other thing is complete. Do I get it or do I just wing it? That's the next question. Well, what were you guys doing at your current? job do you guys have some sort of simulation or verification uh hypermill has it the built pipe in. axis yeah and, okay 
So, yeah, I don't know. You know, I talked to Rob Lockwood, and he, he has it, and he doesn't use it. Well, okay, never mind. He's not doing production work there, right? He's he's doing a lot of the variable yeah. work, which I would think that'd be where you'd want it. But, um, well, you know, so I don't know. And I'm, I'm following closely with Saunders and their Camp League journey, and I think Crimson got Camp League as well, right? For the current, right? right. Yeah. So yes. I'm but just the risk like of crashing a current is like the the risk and the consequences. Astronomical. Are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I could probably get away with it, but you know, it'd just be like the first time you run a program, it's 10% feed, 10% rapid, hand on feed hold, right? Until it's done type of deal. I think with Camplete, it'd probably give a little bit more confidence. You still have the hand on the feed hold, you're going slower and everything, but. I don't know. I mean, this is a tough. Is this? I don't know how much Camplete costs, so I'm curious. I emailed them as well, so I'm waiting for them to get back to me. Uh, you know, 10k probably sure do it. 15, 20. I, I don't know. It starts to be like, can I just figure it out on my own? I'm curious if anyone. Want you? Um, I'm curious if if Jay Pearson's running it. This is this is his first five-axis machine. Um, yeah, uh, maybe reach out to him and see if he's doing any kind of you know. Uh, third-party verification software. Oh yeah, yeah you're right. Okay. Um, I think he's a Fusion guy, but I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, and Fusion definitely doesn't have what you need for full verification on five right. axis today, at least. Right. But uh, yeah, that's kind of yeah. My only two data points are both guys are using Camplete. So um, be interesting to see where Jay lands in that camp. I can tell you, or if he lands it, my boss is probably not using Camplete, and he is playing with a 750. He just oh, that's right. I forget you guys had the 750. 10% feed rate override just all the time until he's absolutely sure. Right, right. And that's uh, that's the way to do it, right? And if we really want to save money, that's what we're going to have to do. But um, I think for peace of mind, I'm leaning more toward just paying for the complete. Um, both because uh, I kind of want to learn it, but also just because I think it's a safer route long term. Right? We don't we don't want to crash the machine for whatever reason. And from what I hear Saunders and them talk about, Camplete seems to have a lot more, a lot more features besides collision detection. Like they can, they can basically make uh, the program from the post better, or they can do more things. And uh, I'm curious to find out from the Camplete rep as well what those features are. Well, if you get to go make a visit to Milterra, let me know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll find out what they say and. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to figure that out. But that's kind of like the last hurdle. Everything after that is just all the fun stuff. I get to start shopping for vices and, and how I'm going to hold a bunch of parts for production. Um, I'm going to do, you know, pallet changing system. I want one operator loading while the thing's running and they can walk away and then, you know, they can swap the pallets, unload all the parts, put new stock on. And I, like literally the Pearson way is pretty much the way that I'm going to go about it as well, because I don't think you can, argue that he's not efficient and that's how i want to be what's your uh, best guess on when that machine will be on on your floor is it going to be like next month or? um if he gets the quote to us with everything that we want um we should be signing like next week or this week coming up and then i don't okay. i don't know how long it takes after that i have no experience in in this um so you're gonna have a lot of questions by the time we get to uh Fusion 360 Academy. In oh, yeah. And <laughs> to be honest, I might be taking that Saunders class uh, pretty soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would definitely consider yeah, yeah. that. Um, I might, if I can, I might yeah. even fly out for that 
February 28th, 29th one, but we'll see. Because uh, I'm still working at my current job and I don't want to ditch out on my two weeks notice with two days, you know what I mean? So I might talk it over with the new employer and see if I can get in on the next one in March or whenever they have it. Now I feel pressure to get a new machine. <laughs> well, you have access to <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're like the first one of us who have access to I mean, to technically, machines, I work but... in a shop with a 750, but there's no way Rob's going to let me touch it. Why not? Because my... It's too new. <laughs> I don't think... I'm not sure... I think our machinist has hit cycle start on a proven program before, but for the most part, Rob's been the only one to touch that machine so okay. far. Yeah. But you get to use the brother every once in a while, right? So every once in a years. rare while, if I come up with a good use for it. But I'm usually not the yeah. one coming up with like machine modifications. So other than that, there aren't really any big projects that would benefit from using that. Like it, It's easier for me to just drop a block of aluminum and spend an extra two hours on the shape oko yeah you guys want to call it a night uh definitely i am <laughs> ready to pass out <laughs> all right good night guys all right have a good one good night